You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Gabriel Rockhill here to talk to us about the Western academia, the Frankfurt School, and their anti-communism. In other words, the academic world war that you did not know was still going on. So how is Paris? <laughs> uh, Paris is good. <laughs> uh, are, are you there for the summer or do you work there? I run a the critical theory workshop, which is a uh, it's a kind of educational nonprofit that I run and we do a summer school. And so right now we're doing a kind of intensive three week summer school at one of the universities here. Okay. Next year, invite me to it. I would love to come. Oh, yeah. No, it's I mean, it's open to people around the world for, you know, we. we oh, it's open. There are a lot of people who are academics who are involved, but there's also activists and artists and cultural producers. And so we really try to bring together people from a diverse array who have interests in knowledge with use value for the contemporary world. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Okay. Um, today we have Gabriel Raquel and he's a philosophy professor who um, teaches about critical theory. So the very first most basic question I'm going to ask is, what is critical theory? Critical theory, as it's been canonized within the Western Academy, is a tradition that comes out of a group of thinkers affiliated with what's called the Frankfurt School, who in the early 20th century received uh, ample funding from a major capitalist to found an institute called the Institute for Social Research. And the focal point was on the failure of the German revolution, why the revolution didn't spread westward. And then of course their concerns evolved over time, but that's just the kind of background for what would become more broadly canonized as critical theory within the Western Academy, which then expanded to include other kind of theoretical developments within the European intelligentsia, particularly French theory, that purported at least to offer a kind of radical critique of capitalism or at least of consumer society and of contemporary society or control societies and other such things. And that's the way in which it's generally understood within the academy is a kind of generalized critical theory that draws on these European traditions that call into question certain aspects of, of society. At the same time, though, there are roots of this more academic style of critical theory within the tradition known as historical materialism or the Marxist tradition. And so although they often traffic in certain forms of what I would call Marxian as opposed to Marxist analysis, so vaguely Marxist, but not really Marxist, the, a lot of what they've done within the academy is to sever ties to this deeper historical materialist tradition and therefore try to redefine critical theory as something that isn't linked to what we might want to call revolutionary theory. And I've tried to unpack, I mean, it's more of an academic or scholarly intervention on my part, but I have a recent piece called Critical and Revolutionary Theory that outlines the you know, various ways in which this deeper tradition of revolutionary theory, which of course goes back to Marx and Engels, but continues to the present, 
and how critical theory was a kind of rightward split from that and a kind of academic and speculative turn that became more preoccupied with theoretical issues and abstract philosophizing than with developing theoretical tools that really explained what was going on in the contemporary world and gave us resources by which we could transform it in a more egalitarian direction. Yeah, um, I I actually host another show called Late Nights with Lenin, where I saw um, that. Um, yeah, and I've been um, one of the hardest things to explain to Western students is how uh, theory in the Marxian sense is different in that it explains why the world is the way it is. Um, I often see student, uh, students who are familiar with like liberal theories where it's like, oh, there's like a dichotomy between theory and practice. And, and then I have to be like, well, if you don't know what you're going, what you're saying, you shouldn't be going and reaching out to people and saying it to people. Absolutely. Like, so Absolutely. it's been like a, it's been a hard thing to explain the difference between, I guess, liberal Western academic uh, theory versus um, how a lot of it is breaks down when you expand, when you expand beyond the little box they draw versus something like Lenin that withstands the test of time and also explains how the world is the way it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I'm thrilled to be involved with a translation project of Dominico Lasordo's book on Western Marxism that will be coming out in English, hopefully in the fall. And I'm working on a preface to that book. The only reason I bring it up is, of course, not as an academic reference, but on the contrary, because he provides, in my opinion, the single best map of precisely what you're talking about. And that is that the deeper historical materialist tradition that, of course, manifested itself amongst other things in the work of Lenin, both the theoretical and practical work, is markedly different from what would happen within the social chauvinist Western academy, where intellectuals increasingly became severed from political organizing and from party structures. They reoriented their intellectual concerns towards speculative and metaphysical issues, They often gave up entirely on political economy and the concrete materialist analysis of society, uh, you know, in, in, in the Marxist sense, meaning an analysis of the social totality, right? Not just uh, particular aspects like consumer society or the culture industry or other such things. And they also unmoored that knowledge, you know, the theoretical knowledge from use value for movements and for social transformation. And so all of that, and there are of course other aspects to this because another big dimension is the ways in which they have both been supported by and in various ways supported the interests of the capitalist ruling class as mediated by major intelligence agencies that were very intent on Uh, funding and supporting a type of so-called critical theory that was no longer invested in uh, any political action whatsoever, but instead was rapidly hostile to any form of actually existing socialism, meaning any use of Marxist theory for actual practice. 
And so that's also another big aspect of Western Marxism is the unbelievable hostility towards actual existing socialist projects, towards socialist states, towards even party organizing, right? Like most all of, not all, but a, a very large number of the theorists affiliated with these traditions are opposed to party structures, to basically to people getting organized in order to change the world. And instead they advocate for a kind of politics of despair and uh, individual reflection and, you know, theoretical reflection. And so, yeah, there's there are enormous problems with this tradition. And we should say, moreover, that it is obviously driven as well by the economic base. It's not surprising that these forms of theory that would pass themselves off as being Marxist when they're not really would develop within the capitalist core and then through cultural imperialism be spread around the world as being the most cutting edge or important form of theory. Because what better thing to do than to convince as many people as possible in the world, in particular the professional managerial class, that what Marxism is, is ultimately opposed to uh, social transformation, to the you know improvement of the world in an egalitarian direction. Absolutely. And... Um... I'm just going to say that it's, I mean, manifests itself 10 times worse in the West because they can get away with that. And yeah, um, what I've noticed is um, entire, uh, uh, okay, uh, um, like I was making fun of this political science professor on TikTok because I thought it was funny. Um, but she basically had a... Hey, like her entire PhD was like how the Arab Spring was covered in authoritarian countries. And then she picked, uh, her, the countries she picked were very different. Like it were China, Venezuela, Russia. And, and that sounds like she picked countries that the State Department was not approving of. And so um, it's that, and there's another political science uh, professor who made this like uh, it, it happened about two years ago where she made this um i don't know criteria or something about democracies versus non-democracies and if you checked u.s under slavery using her metric would be more free than u.s after slavery so <laughs> i'll send you i can send you both the papers it's um that's, that's great that's good scholarly work right getting the job done for the ruling class. Exactly. <laughs> but um, what, what I've noticed is that a lot of political science is just covering up for imperialism, kind of putting a box around that. And then um, let's not even start talking about economics because that's it. I mean, I don't even want to. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and so it's... Uh, uh, I don't know what to say besides it's very troubling for me because I, I, I'm originally from India to kind of see this like boxes being put around and uh, just so that like they don't have to see past, see anything outside of this box, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, absolutely. There's a long and deep history of the material constitution of bourgeois social science. And if you look at the big picture of how that enterprise emerged largely in the latter half and latter third of the 19th century within the capitalist core, the very basis of bourgeois social science is liberal ideology. So you begin by saying, well, we need a discipline that focuses on economics. And we need a different discipline that deals with politics 
and a different discipline that deals with society, right? So you have sociology, political science, and economics, three of the principal uh, social sciences that begin with the assumption that these things could be analyzed in isolation, as if you can understand anything about the political world without doing an analysis of the economic base or you know anything about society without taking seriously the political and economic factors. And then on top of that, you have the colonial enterprise that's really baked into the bourgeois social sciences as the other disciplines. Anthropology, of course, is, is one of the most blatant, um, but there are, there are others, what was, you know, used to be referred to as Orientalism and then kind of transitioned into area studies and other such things with a lot of funding and backing by the intelligence services. These are enterprises that presume that the peoples of the world elsewhere are, they don't really have a developed society or civilizations that need to be studied like political science and economics would study them in the Western world, but instead we have to have a different science that looks at these, uh, you know, savage forms of social organization. And in the case of anthropology or in the case of Orientalism, it was dealing with civilizations like China or, or Persia or others that were recognized as being quote unquote, somewhat developed, but not fully civilized. And so that's the that's the very basis. But then if you look at how these disciplines have evolved in the 20th century, I mean they're really based and the long and the 21st century for that matter, they're really based on beginning by dividing the world in terms of a kind of techno-scientific parcelization, chop the world up. And there's an ideological orientation that is part of that. And that is that you can't then see the social totality. You can't see how it's all connected. And one of the most difficult things for me as being trained within Western institutions has been to both recognize how ignorant I had become by those institutions and then also endeavor as an autodidact to teach myself how the world actually works by connecting the dots. I'll just give you one example that I think really speaks volumes about the discipline of political science. There was a study that was done by David Gibbs, and he looked at all of the articles published between 1991 and 2000 in five uh, journals that were the top class journals in social sciences specializing in international relations. He found no significant discussion whatsoever of covert operations by the CIA, right? So the other thing that these disciplines do is they establish kind of common sense assumptions about the way the world works, and then they construct narratives around them, and they exclude some of the fundamental driving forces. Because if you are not studying CIA covert operations in the latter half of the 20th century, you have no clue what's going on in, in geopolitics. Oh, absolutely not. That's one of the reasons, you know, that these people are hired and that this work is promoted. Exactly. And then it seeps all over to Western journalism, which, I, like, I often say, like, whenever you read New York Times or any Western uh, piece about a foreign country, you have to always imagine yourself as the CEO of the East India Company and look at <laughs> everything through that demented mind. <laughs> and that's yeah. how it often feels. Um so, I guess the first question. Um, so there were these two German scholars, and I guess 
the real worry about the people who were funding them was how to stop something like the a successful german like a successful spartacus like revolution from happening inside the imperial core am i right oh to come back to the origins of frankfurt school critical theory yeah yeah well there was a there were a group of scholars who came together including Georg Lukacs who is quite different uh given his dedication i mean he was a he was a member of the communist party in hungary and his both intellectual and practical orientation was quite different so the very beginning and he he was involved in a research week that was a kind of preparatory moment for the institute for social research so at the very you know early moments of the founding of this institute there were a number of marxists involved who were doing analyses of political economy and who had some dedication to you know forms of socialist organizing or at least some interest in them and what happened with the evolution over time is that in particular max horkheimer uh took over the directorship of the institute for social research in the interwar period and he then charted the course in the coming years that uh severed its ties increasingly you know little by little to these forms of uh marxist analysis and the question of the german revolution was you know it was one of the beginning points for the question and just so your viewers and listeners if they don't know of course one of the big questions was in 1917 the revolution kicked off and succeeded in the soviet union or what would become the soviet union or the weakest link in the imperial chain as lenin referred to it and there was both a lot of hope and in certain instances expectation that the revolution would spread westward right that it would go to germany next because germany was such uh, an important pole in the communist party and communist organizing there was so developed and it did it started to spark off in a very serious way with um you know uh, seizures of uh, certain regions within germany but then the social democratic party in germany which had already been accused of being social chauvinistic and supporting world war 1 and other such things uh turned their not only turned their backs on the communists but they they um they were responsible for uh in part you know allying with the the capitalist parties and the pro capitalist parties in order to crush the revolutionary potential so it's a incredible moment in the history of global class struggle and extraordinarily important for people to understand because it also is a watershed moment in the relationship between social democracy or kind of reformist or evolutionary approaches to marxism on the one hand versus the kind of revolutionary socialism or the third international orientation that you get in the bolsheviks and so it's that water one quick moment, comment um, right? the social yeah. democratic party not only like um turned their backs they literally hired yeah. um uh paramilitaries known as like the white guard to actually uh end up like Yo, violently leaders. crushing it <laughs> the spartacus yeah. revolution i just wanted to yeah no absolutely yeah it wasn't uh it wasn't turning their back in the sense of um it was it was a violent assault um and of course leading to the death of rosa luxemburg and other leaders of the spartacus uprising and so it was very clear to i think most people at the time who were paying attention at least that when push comes to shove a uh, class struggle between the social democrats and the revolutionary socialists at least in this instance it was very clear that that was uh you know a violent struggle to death 
And that kind of set the stage for then the larger questions that the Institute for Social Research were asking. And some, some of them were, I think, you know, had, had a vested interest in, in really coming to terms with these events. Others were not particularly interested in the potentials for actually existing socialism and increasingly moved to the right and became critical not only of the Soviet Union and of the Bolsheviks, but then even of the Social Democrats. So they even went further to the right than, you know, of course, Social Democrats and the Social Democratic Party of um, Germany at that point in time, they were self-declared Marxists. And so there was a kind of, um, you know, an evolutionary or reformist form of Marxism that was that was prominent then. But the Institute for Social Research, you know, largely went even to the right of them. And in any case, they weren't involved in organizing in political parties themselves. They were instead academics who were kind of watching on the sidelines and denigrating the attempts on the part of, you know, activists and workers to build an alternative world. Oh, okay. Um, so... I, I guess um, then, um, yeah, okay, so in the 1930s, we know um, what happened uh, with uh, the whole fascism in Germany and the Frankfurt, I, I guess, uh, Hakamar and Adorno then moved to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they went into exile. Uh, you know, it is important, of course, the the rise of Nazism within Germany, and there's a lot that could be said about it in and of itself, because, of course, they rose within a bourgeois democracy and parliamentary forms. And so it's a very important, particularly in our day and age, to recognize that there wasn't something like a fascist coup d'etat. There was a consolidation of power, for sure, but it was within the parliamentary and bourgeois mechanisms. And we need to be able to recognize that that so-called political liberalism is not a bulwark against fascism. Oh, absolutely. Hold on. Uh, yeah, on the contrary. I wrote an article um, about that, actually. Um, so uh, coming back to this story then of these German critical theorists with the rise of Nazism, they were Jewish and sought to fled and uh, sought to flee. And so through various contacts, they eventually ended up in New York City and were working at the University of Columbia that then temporarily housed the Institute. Uh, one of the elements that I point out in some of my research is that Walter Benjamin, who was also a German Jew who did not want to fall into the hands of the Nazis, uh, was seeking to leave. And the story that I was always told when I was studying these things, both at the university and then in reading secondary and tertiary literature in the wake of my studies, is that they were trying to do everything they could to get Benjamin out. But I discovered that actually that's not true at all. And they refused to fund his trip and even pay for his steamboat. And there's an excellent piece by, I think his name is Ulrich Fries that just came out two, three years ago, I believe. And it's, it's in German, it hasn't been translated as far as I know, but he's done a lot of archival research and demonstrated that Horkheimer uh, uh, basically was flush with funds in the Institute, he had money to support Benjamin, but didn't do so. And moreover, that he and Adorno then ran a cover-up campaign, because what happened with Benjamin, he was trying to get out of France. And just as a side note, you know, Benjamin was very close to Brecht in various ways. And Brecht, Bertolt Brecht, uh, the playwright and poet, 
was a big supporter of revolutionary socialism. And so in their correspondence, Adorno and Horkheimer referred to the savage influence of Brecht on on Benjamin and the need to try to get the Brechtian influence away because they hated they hated Brecht's politics in short. And so Benjamin ended up, he crossed the border to Spain. He was in France at that point in time and uh, got caught and knew he was going to be sent back to France and most likely fall into the hands of the Nazis the next day. And so he committed suicide on the border. And it's a tragic, tragic moment. And that uh, backstory that now, at least through the work of Ulrich Fries, has been confirmed shows that these leaders of the Frankfurt School, Horkheimer and Adorno, were not only politically suspect in many ways that I'm sure we might be able to get into in greater detail, but they were ethically very corrupt individuals who were self-serving and uh, would allow someone who was a close collaborator of theirs to not only die in such horrid circumstances, but then also to run a cover-up campaign in order to whitewash their own role in it. so I think it's an important part of that history, and I, I encourage anyone interested to look at Ulrich Fry's work. But then also, Ralph Biggershaus has a you know very uh, long book on the history of the Frankfurt School, and he also points out a kind of broader pattern where Adorno and Horkheimer were uh, more or less systematically interested in their private life goals over and above the interests of everyone else. So they were opportunists, and they bent over backwards to do so, uh, so much so that Brecht kind of accused them of being, you know, prostitutes to the corporate capitalist world. And although that, you know, sounds slanderous and is obviously a critique, when you look at the details of what they were doing, then uh, you recognize, well, there was a basis for these types of statements that he made. One of the studies that you mentioned, like right in 1944 or 45, the Institute took the study of anti-Semitism in American labor when, I guess, that year, like, I, I would think they had, it seems like kind of a strange thing to focus on that year is all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, of course. No, when you see the larger parameters of their analyses, they were basically seeking out foundation money. And we need to know, of course, that foundation money, the major foundations, Ford, Rockefeller, Carnegie, but then, of course, all the the others as well. These are enterprises that are run by the capitalist ruling class. And they are what Ruth Gilmore has, I think, aptly referred to as twice stolen wealth. So the capitalist ruling class steals the value produced by the workers. That's the first theft. But then the foundations, as they were set up in the early 20th century, are basically kind of tax shelters. So instead of redistributing a tiny portion of that wealth to the government that then, at least in ideal circumstances, would uh, use that for healthcare, education, paving roads, and other such things, they aren't required to pay the taxes and they can use that money to instead, so that's the second theft, right? They steal it from the tax revenue. It's no longer... uh, in the form of tax, and they use that money to uh, invest in various projects, and in particular in intellectual and cultural projects that serve their own interests, right? So the 
major foundations have been doing this for a very, very long time. And they have a vested interest in making sure that the research they support, the artists, the cultural producers that they support are doing their bidding. And the Institute for Social Research is a very good example of that. Um, in fact, one of the operatives for the Ford Foundation in Europe, Shepard Stone, I believe his name is, if my memory serves me right, he praised uh, the work of the Institute and encouraged, you know, the people that he, the circles that he was in to support their work because they were doing the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of research that was in the interests of the capitalist ruling class and the imperialist West. And the particular case that you're referring to when they were hired to investigate the kind of um, anti-Semitism within communist-run unions, and they actually came to the conclusion that the communists were the most fascist-minded. Right? And, and mind you, this is this is insane, right? Yeah, this yeah. Is, because like, who freed? I mean, who freed Berlin? Who freed all? Like, like, I mean, there was one camp the U.S. freed, one camp that the British, British freed it, but every other camp was freed by the communists. Every partisan was a communist. <laughs> and the Soviet Union gave 27 million people to the fight against uh, fascism. And China later, like the Red Army in, the, in China gave 20 million people. Exactly. Yeah. And so the people who fought and defeated fascism during World War II were the communists. I don't think there's any, uh, no. any argument one could ever make based on real evidence to the contrary. And so the idea that somehow the communists would be fascist. And of course, this is a State that, Department line. It's a propaganda line. And that, that makes no sense if you look at how fascism is basically Reaganomics on steroids. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fascism is, it, well, Alan Dulles, the, he was in intelligence at that point in time and then would become a longstanding director of the Central Intelligence oh, Agency. Okay. He said very explicitly, why are we fighting um, the Germans? They are Aryan, pro-Christian, and pro-capitalist like us, we are fighting the wrong enemy. And this is in World War II. And of course, Alan Dulles then oversaw negotiations with the Nazi high mm -hmm. command in an attempt to have a peace agreement with the Nazis who were just under Hitler so that then the Nazi regime could unleash the full force of its might against the Soviet Union, because that was the project, right? Yes. That was, we should never forget that. That was a project from day one. Mm -hmm. And it's the project that, six, that the imperialist countries failed in doing in 1918 to 1920, when 14 of them, allied, of course, with the white, white Russians, tried to crush and strangle, according to, uh, this is Winston Churchill, who said this, the red babe in its crib, and they failed. Right. They failed to kill the Bolsheviks. And so what Hitler was doing was continuing the work that the imperialist ruling class wanted to get done. And that's why they funded. Exactly. It. That's why he received Ford money. That's why he received so much money from the capitalist ruling class and admitted himself that he would never have been able to get into power if he didn't have all of that financial backing. And in Mein Kampf, he spelled yep. it out. You know, his life project was to destroy the Soviet Union. And what happened, and that's why the United States also dragged their feet, and it took some two years before they opened up the Western Front, is and that then it took the, like some mysterious three years to get into France from Africa, but that's another story. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. No, there's a lot, and the Western Front was <laughs> it was some ten percent of yeah. the 
Nazi military that was on the Western Front and 90 percent. Exactly. And I mean, uh, yeah. And and when you look at the Eastern Front, it's just um, there's no comparison to what like the atrocities. Uh, Oh, absolutely. But then um, this is very curious that I guess these two Jewish men would want to move to West Germany after the war, considering who was in power (laughs) at an hour. Yeah. No, absolutely. Let, let me just back up just one second, because I feel like I didn't fully answer your question, because we were talking about this study that mm-hmm. they did, right, where they found that the communist uh, unions were the most fascist minded. Just one thing that people have to know about this is that this was funded by the Jewish Labor Committee. Why? And one of the Jewish Labor Committee's leaders was David Dubinsky. Oh. And David Dubinsky, I remember when I first read this, I'd come across this name so many times before because he has so many ties to the Central Intelligence Agency. And he was involved with the leaders of the attempt on the part of the Central Intelligence Agency, very successfully, moreover, in many cases, to seize control of unions and make them into so-called free unions. So people like Jay Lovestone and Irving Mm -hmm. Brown. And so actually the project that Adorno and Horkheimer were working on was funded by someone with not only strong ties, but he worked hand in glove with the Central Intelligence Agency in the ongoing war against communism. So they were doing the type of intellectual work that was anti-communist and oriented in the exact direction that the capitalist ruling class and the Central Intelligence Agency that works for them uh, wanted it to be. And so we also have to, you know, a big part of this story for me is we're trained, or at least people who study theory in the academy are trained to look at individual theorists and their theories. They're never trained to do the political economy of knowledge production. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the political economy, then you start to understand much more clearly what's going on. Because what they produce as individuals is largely a product of the funding streams that are directed by particular forces and have very specific agendas. And um, I guess this also explains why... Um well, it's kind of funny because in often, um, I don't know if you know Dan Kovalik, um, but in oh, yeah. third world circles, yeah. people often call the u- union as a joke, AFL-CIA. <laughs> exactly. And exactly. this explains the direction of how American unionism went down that route. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Because they did the same thing, of course, within the, within the United States. Um, the whole quote unquote free union movement is, I mean, there's, there's books and books written upon this and some really great research um, that demonstrates how they, and they did it with the student unions mm-hmm. as well and student associations. You take control of the leadership, you leverage it away from communists, and then you orient, you basically become, you make a union into a store. Uh, workers management yeah. <laughs> uh, organization, right? So you manage the workers better by giving them tiny little crumbs and keeping them acquiescent and making sure they keep working. The labor union study really perked my ears because one of the most um, uh, destructive forms is the um, Solidarity Center, uh, uh, the AFL's, AFL-CIO's like collaboration with the intelligence agency that happened, like it probably still happens today, as far as we know. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, and there's, uh, yeah, the, and the work of Lovestone is like, it's, it's right at the core of all of this in Irving Brown. And there's, they also did this throughout Europe. I've looked specifically in the cases of Western Europe, and this is exactly what they did. And they had unlimited funds, basically. So you imagine being, you know, what unions would do if they had access to unlimited funds. 
uh, it doesn't, unfortunately, in certain instances, it didn't take much for them to, to leverage it in a particular direction. But they also did a lot of other things, right? It wasn't only the carrot, it was also the stick. So they were involved in hiring the Corsican mafia to crush uh, various strikes and things in the south of France in the wake of World War II. And they would use this kind of twofold approach, right? The carrot of the unlimited funds of the Central Intelligence Agency, usually cloaked under other you know, auspices, combined with the bludgeon of the various uh, forms of organized crime that they'd work with in order to you know, crush picket lines and, or try to crush picket lines and also just uh, beat up and harass communists and socialist organizers. We're currently in talks with thugs, roustabouts, and scallywags to put together our own assault brigade to rough up anti-communists and pro-capitalists. All we need is some more subscription money, so please go to historically.substack.com and subscribe to our newsletter and check out previous episodes of our podcast. That's historically.substack.com. Ever ask yourself, what is to be done? Well, to quote Lenin himself, from The State and Revolution. <clears throat> Log into iTunes and give Historically a five-star rating. Hmm. Wise words. Also, you can catch our live streams on Twitch, Rockfin, or YouTube to learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ilanov by tuning in to our Late Nights with Lenin. Uh, one thing that interested me in your article is so they, uh, the Frankfurt School, they contracted with this company that was very, very involved with the Reich um, to study for a sociological study on workers' opinions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, they, uh, they had a research contract with the Mannesmann Corporation. Um, and the Mannesmann Corporation had been one of the founding members, actually, of the Anti-Bolshevik League and um, had financed the Nazi party. And so, and moreover, during the war, the management corporation, like so many other corporations in Germany, and there's great scholarly research on this, uh, Jack Powell's work on uh, Hitler and big business comes to mind, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that can be read on this because it's very You could just read the Nuremberg trials itself. <laughs> well, yeah, but the Nuremberg trials too, you know, were, were very tightly controlled uh, by the Central Intelligence yeah. Agency and many of the corporate leaders, of course, got off got free and they tried to restrict oh, oh, yeah. it to almost nothing because <laughs> I'm just saying there's a lot of documents there that where none of none of the corporate involvement should be that obscure yeah. by yeah. now no absolutely no I agree and I wasn't contradicting what you were saying I was just saying that uh, there's of course it depends on the level of analysis but there is a lot within uh, those trials that reveal some of what was going on but they were also so tightly controlled so that all of the uh, business fascists not only got off scot-free, but often their assets were protected and then they were just, mm -hmm. you know, it was business as usual after the war. And Sullivan and Cromwell, of course, the... Uh, That's Alan Dulles's Exactly. Firm, right? uh, him and his brother were running what, according to some accounts, is the largest Wall Street um, legal firm, uh, were very invested in... They, they oversaw a lot of the uh, foreign direct investment in Germany uh, in the lead up to war during the war and then protected a lot of the assets. And so there's a whole story there, uh, you know, to be 
to be told. But as far as the Mannesman Corporation, like many other corporations, they used slave labor uh, during the war. And the fact that then the Frankfurt School would have a contract with them after the war, right? These are Jewish intellectuals who had fled the mm-hmm. war. They were the ones who were, you know, members of the professional managerial class. And in fact, Horkheimer's father was a millionaire and Adorno's was a wine merchant. So we can't forget, of course, that the, the war on the, the genocidal uh, war of the Nazis was a class war, right? And of so the people who were the first to be put in the concentration camps were the socialists and the communists. And mm-hmm. the ones who were lucky first to get out. for the had, communists. What's that? Like that poem. The poem starts with first they came for the communists. Da, da, exactly. Da. Eventually exactly. then they came for me. Exactly. And then the ones who were able to get out usually had the financial means and the contacts, etc. Which, of course, you wouldn't you know, fault someone for getting out if they could. Mm-mm. But it is true that that obviously created, you know, very significant class stratification. And then that the Frankfurt School, really part of its career that it's made is on its um, critique of anti-Semitism and the fact that they would actually... I, I guess around this time, they started also getting into more of the culture part of, I guess, West cultural critique is the word you use, right? Yeah. Which is interesting, right? Because uh, sometimes the group of thinkers that we're talking about, Adorno and Horkheimer, and then others, right, who are affiliated with them in various ways, Marcuse, etc., they're referred to as Western Marxists, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, but then also as cultural Marxists. And what most people mean by that... I always thought... Yeah, go ahead. Hold on. I always thought cultural Marxism was like a talk with Ultimate Jews, but I didn't realize it was an actual study, I guess. <laughs> you always thought that it was what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear a dog whistle used by anti-Semites. Oh, it is. Yeah. It, you know, it's <laughs> like most terms. It is also that and by the extreme right and other things. But uh, it is used in, you know, academic circles to refer to Marxists who more or less recognized. And of course, I'm saying this ironically, that actually existing socialism was not worth any support. And that all of those revolutions had failed and were basically just capitalist. And in fact, in the case of Adorno and Horkheimer, they just call them fascists. They think the Soviet Union is fascist. It's ridiculous. Um, But yeah, um, that, but that kind of idea of all these revolutions have failed because I don't know, they cracked down on the white army or killed a fascist or something like that. It's very, it permeates throughout Western academy like in everyone from noam chomsky to like anyone you can name except for like the five or six people you named in the beginning yeah. it seems to have permeate everyone in the west well <laughs> part of my research now is precisely on what forces produce that right because chomsky is a rabid anti-communist in fact he oh, on yes. record calling lenin a counter-revolutionary yeah, no, no, he, no, no. he called him a right-wing deviation, which it shows that he doesn't know what a right-wing deviation is. Yeah, even though he's doing and it Lenin's himself. not that, because the Bolshevik Revolution happened at the right time. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, a lot of the ways in which the Western ideology around uh, socialism became consolidated was through the... Uh, ways in which both MI6 in Great Britain, the intelligence service in Great Britain, and the Central Intelligence Agency uh, 
ran enormous, and they continue to do it, enormous propaganda endeavors. And so I've been going through and looking at the major scholarly historians of the Soviet Union and of China and of other actually existing socialist countries. And the connections are, I'd like to say they're mind boggling because they're so direct, but at the same time, it makes perfect sense. I'll just give a a few quick examples, right? Uh, Robert Conquest has a famous book called The Great Terror. Stalin oh, of the yeah. 30s. You know that book? It's actually, yes. that's based on files from the IRD. The IRD is the uh, International Research. It's, it's the Information Research Department that was set up by the Foreign Office in Great Britain with close <laughs> links to MI6 and CIA as a, as a secret propaganda uh, consortium, if you will. Yeah. There were like 400 full-time propagandists who are working for this. And, uh, and, and, and the list goes on. David Barzerle. I, I mean, like in some of like Robert Conquest's um, alleged um, uh, research, it's literally like uncritical testimony of Nazi collaborators. Like it's propaganda. Stalin it's, killed 10 billion people and burned all. Yeah. And, it, it's just, and Anne Applebaum, it, of course, continues to do the same thing today oh in the Atlantic. It is, it is actually pure state propaganda. And this, this oh my the god, record, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. And Applebaum's book, um, I forgot one, but it literally st- it, 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 they take the OUN and Stefan Bandera as serious sources, and then they also lie about who they are. They say that they fought both the Soviets and the yeah, Nazis, absurd. which they didn't do, yeah. and uh, it's like a it like completely whitewashed who the OUN was and but Bandera. I, I mean, it, it's Shocking. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is part of, it's interesting because the, the article that we're talking about is part of a larger book project that I'm working on entitled The Intellectual World War. And the Intellectual World War examines precisely these issues because it looks at the political economy of knowledge production, right? Who's getting funding and support from the RAND Corporation and from the Central Intelligence Agency in order to put forth work that basically what they do is they take state propaganda and then they give it in academic imprimatur. And, oh, oh, yeah. Um, right? Okay, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to rail on somebody who uh, kind of annoys me um, a lot. Um, Timothy Schneider, like, he doesn't speak Russian or Ukrainian. I know this because he, um, the B in English is look is, is pronounced like a V in Russian, right. and he doesn't speak it because they've, like, made this, like, dumb transliteration error where somebody whose name is Velika they just change it to Bellica and they've done that like so many times. Right. Um, yeah, he, he does the same thing. It's a lot of like whitewashing the OUN and. Uh, yeah. And he's, I believe he's received awards from the American historical association. Right. Which is yes. another, I, in my research, I found that seven presidents of the American historical association since world war two had were operatives within the U S <laughs> Uh, intelligence system, either the OSS or the CIA. Oh my God. So these are the people overseeing historical production and giving awards. Ridiculous. Of course, to people like uh, Timothy Snyder or others, you know. So the most acclaimed and most visible historians are those who are producing the propaganda that then advances the agenda of the U.S. empire and capitalist ruling class. And the shocking thing is that it's not hard as in it's literally just looking up their sources and comparing what the sources say to what they, they claim they say is enough to like throw away half their research. So it's not even 
that's what shocks me is that it's not hard to discredit any single one of these books. It's just that there's 10 billion of them. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And that's what they do is they flood the market. And it's um, it's interesting, too, because they do it simultaneous. It's, it's both carrot and stick. So if you get on Amazon and you're like, oh, I want to buy a book on the history of the Soviet Union, what are you going to find? You're going to find endless propaganda. And at the same time, they uh, use the most draconian forms of censorship to exclude Right. Like think of Michael Parenti's work or others, you know, that that are not Uh part of the public sphere in the sense of half of it. It's just because it hasn't been translated into English. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the translations, they tightly, tightly control them. I mean, the IRD that we were just talking about, this MI6 cutout, basically, or the foreign office cutout, they uh, oversaw the translation of uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm into 20 different languages. Right. So that's what they also do. They make sure that they they censor the real story and they endlessly pump out propaganda and academic propaganda. I have to say, because I've studied a lot of the history of propaganda in, you know, if it be Hollywood or mass culture or other things. And that's really important because it has such a far reach. But the pro- one of the deep problems with academic propaganda is that it's given a kind of higher symbolic status. Right. So uh, I think Timothy Snyder, isn't he at Yale or Right? They're all at Yale and Stanford and Columbia and the Russian institutes at Columbia and Harvard, are, are they were set up by the CIA. This is very, very well documented. And so when you give that academic imprimatur, then the sophisticated members of the professional managerial class can say, well, what do you know about Stalin? Did you read the Yale historian's latest book on the you know, genocidal impact? He co- exactly. Um, and then you're like, yeah, he, but he literally quotes this guy. Who, he quotes a fairy tale. Of, there's the Ukrainian fairy tale that he quotes as though it happened during the <laughs> 1932. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's like it's like a Ukrainian story of like a Don Quixote kind of per- character. It's so telling, yeah. right? That's so telling. <laughs> where this guy goes to bury himself, and everyone in the village is ignoring him. Um, obviously, like that doesn't sound like it actually happened because it didn't. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but then, um, yeah, like I've uh, the volume is what's shocking, and can we talk a little bit about? atrocity propaganda like right before the iraq war we got the naira story um incubator babies or whatever and then there's there's like there's no such uh i mean those are the things and i'm sure there was in vietnam god knows what they said but how does that fit into this whole ecosystem yeah well the incubated babies we know is is completely fabricated right it's a psyop uh just like the toppling of the saddam hussein statue right that was a psyop and uh, there's been, you know, really great investigative journalism and kind of scholarly research demonstrating how this larger propaganda apparatus works. Uh, Frank Wisner of the CIA referred to what they were setting up in their propaganda apparatus as the mighty Wurlitzer, where they had a jukebox uh, that was global and they had controlled so many press outlets, you know, newspapers, dailies, weeklies, also uh, TV and, of course, now Internet uh, with all of big tech being involved in these projects and they control the global narrative from a single spot, you know, like Langley, Virginia, you press a button and the same narrative plays around the world. And it's pretty incredible what's we've seen, you know, with the, with the war in Ukraine, because it's so consolidated. I'm a little flabbergasted at how, well, it, okay. It seems to work well in the Western world, but yeah, they interview, um, 
every bandera ate yeah. every right wing nut job like this has been like the, the like it, this has been like iraq on steroids with all the lies and the overwhelming yeah. but yeah and how, how does academia fit into this oh it plays a central role of course i think you just didn't you just have on kit clarenberg on one of your podcasts yes yeah so we talked about the um pedophile uh the helmet experiment. Uh, oh, but did you? Yeah, because you mainly looked at the yeah the MK Ultra. I don't. I can't remember if it was on your show or on another interview with him because he did this recent expose on Paul Mason in Great Britain. Did you, I don't know. no 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 no? Um, I did not. I also write for the Gray Zone, but uh, I have read his um, wonderful expose exactly. on Paul Mason. But we didn't. Um, Such a. Right. Uh, we didn't talk about that. We talked about the helmet experiment, which is just uh, yeah, true. Very gross. Yeah. <laughs> so can you tell that? Well, it's just, to this is just one about. recent example, of course, Paul Mason, a faux progressive journalist in uh, Great Britain, who is shoring up what the CIA is always referred to as the compatible left. And this is a propaganda campaign is you shore up the compatible left, meaning the left that's compatible with capitalism and imperialism, right? The people who are fine with going to war and, and keeping the capitalist ruling class in power. And you... Uh, sever that from the non-compatible left. <laughs> Those people who actually want to change the world and then you discredit them, you try to crush them, you deplatform them, et cetera. And so uh, Kit Clarenberg's work has revealed very clearly, and I know he's collaborated with a few other people at the Gray Zone, that Paul Mason, this you know faux progressive journalist, has worked with British intelligence and academics in order to, they were basically um, you know concocting a... Uh, propaganda network or, you know, organization that would shut down the, what they consider to be the threat to the UK left. So basically any of the voices on the left, they cite, you know, Vijay Prashad and Carlos Martinez and other people like this who are extraordinary analysts of contemporary society made unbelievably important contributions to understanding what's actually going on. Um, they wanted, you know, basically get them labeled as pro-Putin, Kremlin, Stooges uh, and all of this, and what's you know clear in that agenda is that the continuity between what Kit Clarenberg has just revealed, along with others, and the deeper history that I've been investigating for uh, years now, because the Central Intelligence Agency's propaganda orientation, and this is the same with other intelligence agencies in the capitalist world, is to work hand in glove with the media and with academia in order to control the global narrative. In fact, in 1975, the Church Committee revealed that the CIA was working with thousands of academics at hundreds of institutions. So this is unbelievably expansive endeavor. And as a side note, this is what's called a limited hangout. The Church Committee report cut that analysis short. And so it most likely goes far beyond that. Because uh, you want the professional managerial class, the kind of the pundits of the professional managerial class to be spouting pure propaganda, but have it be labeled as, you know, credentialed as CNN or as Yale or as Harvard. And it's just branding. You brand propaganda by giving it a symbolic label of being somehow, you know, above what amateur historians might be able to figure out on their own. Um, and and that's been that's been a longstanding and ongoing project. In fact, the Central Intelligence Agency and a lot of the internal documents that I've looked at, they're very clear that the war for hearts and minds is the principal war. It's the most important one. 
the war that you fight with the death squads and all of that, it's expensive. It takes time. You know, these poor CIA people, they have to kill a lot of people, uh, 6 million globally between 1947 and 1987, according to one analysis by 14 former members of the CIA. And then there's blowback because people don't like it. People don't like to be killed. And people start to realize that the American empire is a slaughterhouse. And so it's much better if you can run these enormous propaganda campaigns and just have, at least within the Western world, the professional managerial class just walking in in lockstep with the propaganda line on Ukraine and not recognizing at all what's going on in the broader stakes, which is, of course, a proxy war that is ultimately aimed at uh you know, potentially going after uh, Russia very directly and then continuing that war against China, which is the greatest threat to the U.S. at this point in time or the perceived threat. And of course, perceived threat uh, because of its because it's working, <laughs> because the economic and social system is doing well, uh, not because it's an actual uh, threat in the sense that it's an aggressor nation. On the contrary, it's building the Belt and Road Initiative and doing all of these other fantastic global development projects that are a threat to the world order of the IMF and the World Bank and so forth. Is that the intellectuals are very involved, even now, in manufacturing atrocity propaganda? And uh, I guess it's more than consent. It's in the end, what do they aim to uh, like? Why do they need our consent? <laughs> Well, they need our consent because reality is radical, as Michael Parenti often said, because in reality, we know that people can't make ends meet and that they can't have access to affordable health care and affordable education, affordable housing and have reliable jobs. And so uh, and you see this, the downward, the decay of the capitalist system is obvious. I mean, I live in the United States and it's just transparent, the skyrocketing homelessness, the housing crisis and everything else. And so people are angry and frustrated and ready to act out in various ways. And that's, as a side note, one of the reasons that we need to get organized so that we can actually like channel that frustration in productive ways, right? Rather than just having it uh, sizzle and burn in really unproductive ways. But the ruling class needs to, and has a very deep invested interest in uh, making sure that they not only maintain the system that can't be maintained because it's devouring itself, but also that they intensify their capitalist accumulation. Right? That's one of the principal reasons for going to war in Ukraine is look at the skyrocketing profits of all of the uh, military uh, ventures and, and Raytheon and all of that, right? And so just coming back to, because I know we're, we're having a, a broad and far-reaching conversation, which I think is great because you have to connect the social totality and see how it's all of a part. But the intelligentsia plays a central role in that. Many of the members of the intelligentsia and the professional managerial class, they manage the minds of the masses, directly or indirectly, right? These are the pundits who are invited on CNN or who write opinion pieces for the New York Times, and who just generally spread dogma uh, day in and day out, so much so that there's just an operative consensus. In fact, one of the things that I've discovered in my research, and, and I have to admit, like I wasn't, uh, I, I'm not a red diaper baby, right? Like I, I went through the capitalist academy. I thought that some of the things I was reading that were forms of radical theory actually were radical in various ways. It's been a long time coming, and I don't say any of what I'm saying lightly. It's because I've 
worked through it, processed it, and realized what was actually going on. Fortunately, otherwise I'd still be duped by it. There is a the major consensus within the kind of radical theory industry as it's promoted globally. So people like the ones we're talking about, Adorno and Horkheimer, but also a lot of others, right? Like Zizek and Badiou and the, the kind of very visible uh, public intellectuals who are considered radical, they're anti-party, they're anti-state, and they're opposed to actually existing socialism. They promote ABS theory. Chomsky, of course, Chomsky is like probably first and foremost, right? It's all ABS theory, anything but socialism. So they will whine and complain and sometimes provide good analyses as well, like uh, critical analyses of like US imperialism. They might not go to the root causes, but they'll at least like point out basic factors about reality. And, uh, but what they do at the end of the day is when you ask them, well, what's the solution to all of these problems? That's the question we have to ask. We have to ask the, the question that Lenin asked, what is to be done? And if response to that, exactly. They either fold up shop and have nothing to say, or they uh, proffer forth some platitudes about how we could potentially change the system from within or reform it, or we just need people to rise up. I mean, they're all just kind of uh, really, really incoherent platitudes. Uh, especially because we live in a world where there's a deep history of global class struggle and there's a demonstration of what it looks like when you fight and win. Because the other thing that a lot of the intelligentsia does is they love to support it. Like the best version that you get is people who will support struggles as long as they lose. Oh yeah. Um, I, I actually once got myself into tr not trouble, but a little bit of a controversy on exactly that on TikTok when I said, I like Rosa Luxemburg, but ultimately Rosa Luxemburg is a loser is what I said, because they want you to like winning to them to like, like the way it'll translate into American newspapers will always be authoritarian oh, course, or whatever. Of course. I mean, imagine if, but that's what winning looks like. <laughs> it's not going to be your enemies are not going to be like, Oh, this man's great. Yeah. It's going to be this man's authoritarian. And he like, was mean to my Nazi grandpa or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Or they do the Black Book of Communism thing where they actually count Nazi deaths <laughs> as uh, being deaths that we should include within the Black Book of Communism. Like, okay, sure. we should be against this authoritarian genocidal regime, apparently, because they killed Nazis. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they're, all of that propaganda is, I mean, we really have to contain the minds of the masses so that they don't think that there's an alternative, right? That's the fundamental message. Things can be horrific and you can have these radical theorists saying everything's bad and it's horrible and consumer society everywhere. And, but at the end of the day, those people will have an enormous platform if they always line up and say, Tina. Just like Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. And what we need, and, right, to be able to fight and win is some optimism here and a recognition of actual material reality. You know, the largest alleviation of poverty in the history of humanity China. didn't occur in the imperialist core. It occurred in China. Yeah. And the United, the United Nations recognizes this. And in right? China, they have high-speed rails. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that far surpass anything we have uh, in the West, for sure. Uh, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. And when is your bigger book coming out? Or Do you have a schedule? Or I don't have a strict schedule. I actually wrote the entire book in French and then had political problems with uh, 
an editor who was disgruntled by the fact that I was pointing out the material history of, in particular, Theodore Adorno and, and Hannah Arendt. And so uh, the contract was torn up, uh, which is a very good example of precisely what the book is on, right? Uh, who controls the intellectual means of production and what narrative do they allow to get out? And so now I'm uh, reconsolidating, writing the book in English and the piece that I wrote for the Philosophical Salon, the CIA and the Frankfurt School's anti-communism is a chapter in that book. And so I don't know the exact shelf life. I'm someone who believes in trying to get things as right as possible and then put them out as opposed to just doing the kind of, you know, publisher parish routine. I hope I'll be able to finish it by like next spring, but I imagine in any case between now and then there'll be other elements from the book that trickle out. Okay, well, please come back. And it was a pleasure speaking to you. And I really enjoyed this episode. It was a real pleasure speaking to you. And keep up the great work, right? It's so fantastic that there's so many people who are developing these alternative modes of information. And it's unbelievably significant for consciousness raising. So kudos, keep up the great work, because I know it's also difficult. It's not an easy task. Oh, well, the difficult part is I can't just... The research takes so much longer for me because I have, it's not pre-digested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you also don't have, right? Like the people that we were talking about who are at Yale and Harvard. I don't they have, have research secretary, hundreds of secretaries or anything Exactly. Like that, they no. have translators, research assistants and everything. And um, so, yeah, we really have to work together in order to support one another and hopefully develop even more uh, networks of, you know, communication, information, education that allow people to figure out the real story instead of just being drunk on propaganda. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.